The Film Jive podcast is made possible by Audible.com. Sign up for a free 30-day trial and get a free audiobook of your choice by visiting audibletrial.com slash filmjive. That's audibletrial.com slash filmjive. Welcome to the driest podcast available, Film Jive. We are recording this episode on April 29th, 2014. My name is Zach. I'm Andy. Uh, This is episode number 68, where we're going to be taking a look at the 1964 science fiction film directed by Byron Haskin, Robinson Crusoe on Mars. I don't know why this is so difficult. Uh, Yeah. I don't know. I don't know why it's so dry. Well, we've been recently outed as a couple of oh yeah dry I guys. That it was dry. I thought I thought it was just like desert like mm. in the back of the woods. It is fitting for this this episode. That, yeah, that is true. Yeah. So with that in mind, Robinson Crusoe on Mars. That's what we're talking about. Andy, you want to read the plot synopsis for us? Uh, yeah, yeah, I certainly. If will. you don't, I'm gonna sit on your chest. <laughs> no, they don't have to do that. Okay. Okay, so after a near collision with an orbiting meteor, the astronauts of spaceship Mars Gravity Probe 1 are forced to seek refuge on the planet Mars. One fails to survive the fall, while Commander Christopher Kit Draper and his pet monkey Mona must fight for survival with limited resources on the ruthless red planet. All right, well, thank you for reading that. Hey, no problem. So, uh, so, so, so Zach, what did you think of ARCOM? Well, if we if we if people did listen to episode sixty six, then they know about your intimate past with this film already. That's true. Yeah, yeah. You wrote a persuasion paper rallying for the Criterion release back in college, yeah. Yeah. back in the days before that was popular, really. Yeah, before college was popular, and Criterion. Yeah, and and and, and you got a standing O. I did. Yeah, I got a standing O. I would say that if you had that paper, we would do. We were going to do a stage dramatic. Yeah, no, reading. I don't. I yeah, I don't have it anymore. So, initial thoughts on Robinson Crusoe on Mars, or as the cool kids call it, Arcom. Arcom. For me, this is quite the head scratcher. Not the back scratcher, the head scratcher, because um, it's interesting because the 1960s were kind of a uh, transitional period, I think, for science fiction films, at least in the U.S. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, you know what? I would actually say it's more so than just the 60s. I would say up until, really, Star Wars, it was a transition. We had films like 2001, Planet of the Apes, that were like high watermarks, but I don't necessarily think that is true up until Star Wars, that we get kind of like what science fiction will be from that point on. I would agree. Up until at least 1968 sci-fi was essentially a product you know of like drive-in programmers that were aiming for cheap seats Mm -hmm. so when you get a film like 2001 or planet of the apes that treats the genre with some kind of dramatic levity um 
that was the kind of the start of where sci-fi is now. Um, so I think Robinson Crusoe on Mars is interesting because it kind of is a contradiction of both things. Yeah, it's kind of torn between the two worlds in a way. It's very much retaining that pulpy, technicolor aesthetic of the late 50s and 60s, but then it kind of has these lofty aspirations to be very hard, scientifically accurate. Oh, yeah, that, w- that was like a big selling point for the movie was its accuracy. Mm-hmm. So all the typical sort of action set pieces that defined the genre at that time, like the giant alien monsters, are not, they're completely absent. Instead, you get a man and his monkey roaming around, evading basically very natural threats uh, of, from the planet. Um, and I do think once the third act begins in this film, it does sort of succeed in terms of it, it sort of gives in to the schlocky temptations that most sci-fi had at that point, which I think is a real shame because I think the first two acts, you know, they're very light. But it's kind of an, a unique meditation on survival, given the context and the time period that the film was made. But I think even as a survival thriller sort of film, even though I don't know that this is really a thriller, uh, but for the sake of kind of labeling it as something, you know, as an entry into that sort of subgenre, I don't think it's very successful. I think every time Kit encounters a conflict, whether it be finding water, or running out of oxygen... Um, like a gift from God, which is kind of an interpretation of this film, given it's uh, being somewhat of an adaptation of the Defoe book. You know, the monkey finds water supplies. He realizes that rocks produce oxygen, oxygen, which I don't understand how an astronaut does not realize there's oxygen somewhere when fire is being emitted all around him. Well, he does even bring that up once he kind of discovers it. Right. He does mention, I kind of wondered where the oxygen was coming from. Mm. So, I mean, he does question why he didn't think of it earlier. But I guess it never really attempts to build any kind of tension out of the situation. Uh, So it leaves me a bit puzzled in terms of what the intentions are. I don't know. I definitely think there's a, a religious and political subtext that can be mined from it. But I don't. I think that's less the intentions of the filmmaker and more just given due to the the, na- the universal nature of the book and. You know, the fact that it's 1964, it's the year previous to when Mariner 4 comes back, and this was just after the JFK situation, So, and even the civil rights movement is happening at this time. So I can appreciate the film in those respects, uh, and I think there are some really fantastic individual scenes, but I think cohesively it's not very successful because I think... Even when the even for its scientific authenticity, which is you know all built around kind of hypothetical science, um, I think it sort of negates that with genre to- tropes that I don't even know that it applies very well. Um, I will I will agree with you that um, it's not necessarily thrilling. Some of it, no, as you kind of mentioned earlier. In for me, that kind of works for the film. I in. And I agree with you that the third act isn't as good as the first two, but um, I do like kind of like just his daily day-to-day life. 
And um, really, the only obstacle that really gets to him that I do think is not necessarily thrilling, but I buy this obstacle more than you know him finding water and stuff is his loneliness. That's the yes, it's the that scene with Adam West returning is by far I think the best scene of the film. Did you, did you think you were watching Gravity? I mean, I <laughs> Alfonso Cuarón had to watch this because there, I think there are a lot of similarities between the two. Gravity's better, I understand that. But there are a lot of similarities. That didn't occur to me while watching it, but that is entirely possible in retrospect. I don't think the religious subtext is as uh, present oh, in this strong. film, but yeah. No, but it's there. A but... lot of, I think there's a lot of beats that are similar. Mm, mm-hmm. And um, one of the things that I do like about it, and I, we kind of like mentioned this earlier before, before the show, um, when we're kind of just chatting with each other. Jiving, really. You're jiving, yeah, that's a, that's, a, that's a better term, is that um, I think some of the problematic um, issues of the original Robinson Crusoe story, I like how they kind of alter that. And um, as I kind of said to you before, by the end of the movie, Kit and uh, Friday are essentially equals at that point. And uh, I kind of, I like that, how uh, how that kind of built over time. Yeah, but I would say that how that comes to be, I don't necessarily like. I mean, it essentially takes Friday saving Kit's life in order for him to come to respect him as an equal I, human being. But I think at, at that point, at that time in history, for a white person to respect a minority on an equal level, you would need something like that. Yeah, I suppose. I mean, the whole uh, sort of... Uh, racist element that you could pull from this movie i don't it doesn't offend me so much in the sense that you know even if you're i don't think the movie's a straight adaptation of defoe's book but Mm. even if you're adapting that book that book in inverted like is racist in its own right anyway i mean you said it was sort of an imperialistic what did you say it was a a conservative wet dream i said a libertarian okay yeah and i it's for me it's like a a puritan wet dream well it's libertarian in that crusoe is able to do all these things by himself just with his ingenuity yeah and in and in the book you know it's it takes him like 24 25 years before he meets another person Mm -hmm. whereas in this film it, it takes four months for kit to go mad from being alone so it heightens the importance of human contact in this film as opposed to the original story, which I think is an important element. One thing that I was frustrated with throughout the first two acts where it's just him and Mona was actually the the score in terms of, I don't think it's a bad score, but I don't like how it's used. It's almost, it almost plays certain moments for like hokey comedy where you feel like you're watching a Disney produced yeah. film. And it being a meditation on loneliness gets undermined by its use of music. I wish that mm-hmm. they would yeah, have kind yeah. of sustained a more melancholy tone tone to the yeah, piece. I can see. I wonder how much of that, though, is how you were kind of, how you kind of started the, the conversation with, um, at this point, science fiction was looked at as a certain genre with, and Bra- Byron Haskins isn't Stanley Kubrick for so uh, I'm kind of like stumbling over my words. Well, yeah, but By- Byron Haskin is, he's almost a product of the genre. Like when you look yeah. at his work that he did, I mean, he he came up as a filmmaker functioning within the the limitations of what the genre was at the time. 
Yeah, and so my and what I'm I guess what I was trying to get at is that everyone that worked on this film, even if they had like loftier expectations for this film than some of their other films, they still saw it as this was a matinee movie, this and this. We may put a little more thought into it, but it's still not a a great piece of work as opposed to what we got later. Mm-hmm. And that may have been why the music, say, is is somewhat hokey. I like it. It's not bad, but like mm. you said. I agree with that. It was interesting in reading some essays on this film that many people don't think that their intention was to make a matinee movie. Mm. I don't know how you could view it as that way. And I think the big kind of uh, flag there is just the title of the film alone. Because yeah. I, I actually really dislike the title. See, I like the title because I like titles like that. Mm-hmm. And um, on the Criterion, just there's a like a slideshow of... I mean, there was the guy that wrote the script and Byron Haskins and one of their wives, who was an illustrator, did a lot of work with um, doing storyboards and things like that. And um, one of the things that they came up with was a, a sequel, which would have been called, I believe, if I remember correctly, it would have been called Christopher Columbus in Space. So it would have told the Columbus story in space. So it even then had like a very generic... Christopher Columbus in space. So, um... My, my feeling I, is that it undermines the film to some extent. I would say even, like, the posters for this movie, if you look at them, do, and that it it's basically telling you the arc of the film before you've even watched it. Oh, yeah, yeah, it's telling you this is... Yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> Which I think if you went into this movie not knowing that this is an adaptation of Robinson Crusoe, it wouldn't maybe come off, at least in my case, as somewhat pedantic. Like it would, mm-hmm. it would be a bit more interesting because I have a familiarity with that narrative. So to kind of see it play out in that manner isn't as exciting as not knowing where its uh, inspiration comes from. I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I, I mean, I don't. I dislike the title in what it does to the film. I'm not saying like it's a fun title. Uh, yeah. It's just in watching the film, it's kind of like that. I wish they would have maybe thought of something that was a little more singular that doesn't no, I understand make this what, feel. Yeah, so. I understand what you mean because you already know kind of what's going to happen going in. Mm-hmm. Especially then, I would say then, because I would say uh, even young people were uh, more uh, literary than mm-hmm. they are today. So they would probably, more young kids even would have been familiar with the full story of Robinson Crusoe, not just the, uh, it's a guy that's, you know, um, marooned on an island. Yeah, because then it, it kind of becomes, became for me, how is this functioning as an adaptation then? Like, yeah. what are they doing to call back to the book and how are they reimagining that for the context of being someone, someone trapped on Mars? Because there really is no reason for it to be called Robinson Crusoe on Mars. Follows a lot of the same story, but I mean, it should just be no, Kit on Mars. Kit on Mars. Yeah. Kit and Mona. Kit, Kit. <laughs> um, one of the things though for this film that I like, especially whenever I watch this movie, is that this movie is like chock full of ideas. Mm-hmm. Everything from the the sausage that grows that you can also <laughs> weave clothing out of. To the, the yellow rocks, to the weird alien race that enslaves the 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 Indian the native the Native American aliens that Friday's a member of. Like all these different kind of like concepts. I I I that's one of the things that I like about this movie. I think it's exciting. I get exciting excited watching it because there's just so much stuff going on that 
I just kind of marvel at how they came up with all these little things. Like, I think the sausage thing, the sausage that grows underwater, that can also be wet, woven into clothes, <laughs> or like his, um, his alarm clock that he builds. Mm. Like, all these little things. I think those are so such neat little things that, like I say, I get excited when I watch it, because I think that stuff's so much fun. It's also sausage that's, like, it grows in water, but it's almost like dry sausage. Yeah. So you can eat it raw if he wants yeah. to and not get sick. And he makes that, like, stew out of it and everything, yeah. That's when he hallucinates. He gets the stomach ache, yeah. 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 I guess it gives it, like, some sort of hallucinogenic drug kind of thing by stewing it, I guess. And, you know, in the original script, they went farther into that. Um, but because of budget restraints, they had to kind of, like, cut back on some of the other kind of concepts that they came up with. But, like, I love, like, the, the underground water pools of water. Like, I think those are cool. Like, I think that's just, like, a neat thing to do. The throne that he builds on the on his like quote unquote beach to his little underwater you know his underground water thing is cool. Yeah. That he yeah. builds himself a throne. I thought I hated the scene though where he was laying on it and like Friday, do this. Friday, do that. Like oh, he was yeah. like a, a a prince. He because you know he learns to respect Friday kind of along the way. Well, the 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 rain the ash rain. That nearly kills Kit. Mm-hmm. Like I thought that, like stuff like that, I think is cool. Yeah, I think the greatest strength of the film is definitely its meticulous design of the planet Mars. Because even today, when you see films that are located on Mars, it's the same kind of a, it's the same thing. It's just a red desert. Right. Yeah. This movie actually presents Mars as a, a a planet with a lot of geographic variety. Yeah. All of the um. Yeah, the ice caps at the end. It's like completely different what you think of when you think of like a Mars film. You don't necessarily think of ice caps. Right, and even the cavern where the water source is located. I mean, there's there's a lot of thought put into where every, every single location that they venture into kind of has its own character to it, which, yeah. which I think is very rare for most sci-fi even of today. It's an interesting thing that, you know, they're trying to be scientifically authentic, but they don't want that to become a detriment almost to the story they're telling. They're willing to kind of compromise, you know, for the sake of kind of presenting a a very interesting, varied spectacle. Well, it's almost like as if they, the creative team, did all this research on Mars and then used that research to creatively explore what could be done or what can be imagined. For this film that there was a lot of that, you know there was a lot of work I, I i think for a film that came out in 1964 it's surprising that friday has a language that they even went to that trouble to create a language for him to speak mm-hmm. i don't think though that <laughs> the visual realization of friday is very good no because he essentially he looks like a, a native american an egyptian well an egyptian native american. <laughs> right um, I do know that his costume is because of budget cuts. It was supposed to look something else. It was supposed to look different. I read something that either their costumes or the costumes of the aliens that are enslaving them came from mm-hmm. the film Destination Mar- Moon. Uh, the the ins- the aliens that enslave. Friday oh, okay. Was, All right. Yeah. That. Yeah. His he was actually supposed to look more alien like Friday. Yeah. Well. Oh, yeah. Three fingers. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I actually like that he looks more. He looks kind of human. I kind of like that. I think that kind of, I think that works for the kind of 
the 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 end message of uh, racial unity in a way. Mm-hmm. And um, my favorite scene is at the end, is when Kit describes the Christian God, and Friday describes his race's idea of God, and Kit doesn't do anything to like. Well, no, you know this Christian. He just goes, yeah, I yeah, that's good. That's, yeah. I like that kind of agreement. Like he wasn't forcing Christianity on Friday. Well, which which he does do in the in, in the, text. the original, yeah, right. So I like that. I see. I like that kind of like brotherhood of man kind of thing mm-hmm. that this movie kind of strives for. Yeah. Um, I do want to talk about Adam West because I don't know if it was even knowing that Adam West is not the lead character of this film. Somehow, in watching those opening five minutes or so, uh, the way that the film presents him, I had become convinced that he was going to become the main character of the film. Well, you know, I've seen this multiple times, and I knew that he wasn't the star the first time I saw it. Mm-hmm. It's and and I feel that way every time I see it that he's the star because he has a star quality to him. As strange as that is, he's not the best actor, but he does have some sort of star quality about him. Yeah, no, there's he has a magnetism on screen that kind of he may be kind of phoning it in here. You know, you're not exactly <laughs> sure how invested he's, he is in what he's doing, but you want to keep watching him. His his facials in the hallucination where he comes back from the dead. I think his facial is that. It's great, you know. I actually think that that is a really sort of a menacing sort of scene. Like it, it is very oh, the lighting and the lighting in that scene. I think is pretty great. Yeah, it's very uh, uncomforting, and I wish to some extent that they would have done more with that than they do. But when you realize that he's kind of hallucinating all of this, it is a very sort of uh, devastating moment. Which yeah, I actually yeah. think that I don't know what kind of career Paul Manti had beyond this film or prior to it i don't think he had a good one i don't think he had a great he had high hopes after this film but it didn't pan out for him i actually really like his performance um i, I think he's good too but i don't know if he could have done another role to that yeah no he no. seems very much like this is his character right no definitely i mean he he feels like he could very easily be just like a stock character that yeah. could be thrown into anything but what i like about the performance is especially early on when he's research, uh, searching the planet, it's very imperfect. Like he's stumbling around and falling mm-hmm. and tripping yeah. and passing out. And um, it's almost like this attempt to sort of emasculate him when he's so, you know, as he's just because just be, he's just as sort of uh, dumbfounded as anyone would be in this kind of situation, even yeah, if he is I... an astronaut. Yeah, you know, I was gonna say. I wonder how much of that is at that time. There was such a like an idolization of astronauts that they had to do something to show. You know, being stranded on Mars, even for an astronaut, is a hard task. Like this isn't something to take lightly. Yeah, and there were certain moments where I actually kind of thought, like, well, that doesn't seem like a very wise thing for an astronaut to do. But then I kind of thought, well, honestly, in a sense, it's humanizing him. So I can appreciate when he maybe doesn't make the best decisions. And I actually really like the sequence where he does stumble onto the camp with the aliens enslaving uh, Friday's yeah. people. And I love that he's carrying like a camera with him and he builds the camera. Oh, I love all the like little things that he makes. Yeah, it's a, just an interesting idea that 
definitely, you know, was something that they came up with, I think, on their own, uh, because this predates the moon landing. So um, it doesn't, you know, I don't know that that was protocol for astronauts to be taking uh, many cameras, yeah, video up with them. I don't like how the video is used. I think it reveals way too much. Uh, I think it's more interesting not to have seen the aliens instead of looking like construction men in you know outfits with big golf balls on their head cut out yeah but, uh, well i'm kind of of two minds with the aliens of that they work as a way to give us friday but i also don't like their appearance because i like just his story of survival and in a way i must think well mona can work as friday well that's what i honestly was thinking for a while was that even though friday comes in late oh yeah and i was thinking after that moment came especially because I wasn't enjoying the initial reactions between the two. I kind of felt like eh, maybe this would have just functioned fine if Mona and Kit were on the island on the planet alone. And then I was kind of anticipating that Mona was eventually going to at some point perish because in the text, you know, he has a dog that dies, you know, he has different pets at different time that pass away. So I kind of thought, well, this is naturally where they're going with this. Uh, I wish there would have been more done with Mona. Well, I did like Mona, like, mimicking Friday's movements, though. Yeah, 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 definitely. I did like that. Yeah, and I I do like how how, it's kind of weird how much attention they give to her when they're trekking across the island. Like, they spend a (laughs) lot of time on the monkey, and I'm just kind of, like, more concerned about the monkey survival than I am the two lead characters. I, 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 I don't know. I liked their everyone's relationship with Mona. They all seemed very concerned for her. I like that. No, yeah, no, and Mona's like how, good stuff. I like I like how um, Mona's even very resourceful. She's the one that, like you said, discovers the water, and she discovers it quite a bit earlier than he does because they foreshadow it earlier in the film when he does his, like, little recordings. He mentions Mona doesn't have to... Mona never drinks. Like, kind of just in passing, Mona never drinks. Right. So by that point, she'd already discovered the uh, the the water. So I, you know, she's a relatively resourceful character, even. Do you think that uh, there is a intentional sort of political commentary going on in the movie, or do you think that's something that's kind of applied by viewers? Well, I I definitely think that there is because this is a. I do think it feels like it's a science fiction film that comes from the Kennedy administration mm. in that it's very um, optimistic about space flight, that we go to Mars relatively quickly. And there is, there's too much with, with the Kit's opinion changing on Friday to respecting him at the end and even respecting his religion that I think goes, it's that like shift in um, ideology from the original story to like almost the, the the Kennedy administration feeling of civil rights and things like even because Friday in this one's a slave. Right. So even that has connotations to the civil rights and African Americans and I mean the most obvious thing was kind of like a Cold War vibe in a certain sense with the Soviets and the Red Planet to some extent. And there's also such a positivity about this one. Even when they're almost facing death, they're almost even there's a positivity, which again, I think goes with that Kennedy administration, you know, the, you know, the idea of Camelot and things like that. I think maybe the earnestness was something that bothered me a bit. It kind of infringed upon my ability to completely 
completely invest in the situation and the characters. It just felt like this situation is far more desperate, I feel, than they're depicting it. Uh, mm-hmm. Like I would be losing my mind if I was on Mars and I had no no oh, hopes yeah. of leaving. And they're very yeah, optimistic yeah. about this. It just didn't seem very human to me at points. Well, I like um, when Kit's watching. I love the scene where Kit's watching the little emergency prepared preparedness video mm-hmm. that the like like I guess NASA supplies astronauts and his commentary towards it, where he's more just like kind of like cracking wise that this kind of like ultimately goofy video. <laughs> Because there's no way that you can really prepare for something like this. But I love the idea that they even came up with the idea that there's a preparation video for for something like this. And he is very positive through all of it, except about being lonely. I'm glad he's very positive. Mm-hmm. He even takes his death almost when he thinks he's going to die. He even takes it kind of with like a grain of salt where it's going to, you know, it's going to happen. Yeah, and I almost wondered if maybe... At some point, he was he was trying to uh, get himself killed. There's that moment where that uh, asteroid lands and all that ash comes up, and Friday goes hiding into that hole. And Kit's like, I, "I'll just stand here over in the corner. <laughs> I'm not gonna make much attempt to hide here." Well, you know, the first time he tries to blow up Mars uh, Probe One, I even felt that there it's almost like him giving up in that one point. Where yeah, he does. yeah, I was a little confused as to the motivation behind him doing that. Yeah. Because that seems to happen pretty quickly. Yeah, yeah. And I and I think it's explained why he was doing it after he tried to do it. And the reason, reason... And you know, I don't remember the reason. But he does say a reason. I believe it's after, not before he does it. When it happened, I, I assumed that maybe it was because his uh, radar system continued to go off whenever it went by in orbit it was annoying (laughs) well it was like giving him this false sense of hope or something and he's just like i'm gonna blow this up so that that thing will stop going off i can see that but yeah that was like a moment where i thought where you know he kind of had given up hope was it that yeah so so are we already at the the end of robinson crusoe on mars uh talk about for some reason the moment where the matchbox he throws on the ground says Kalua Club, San Diego, California. I really enjoyed that. <laughs> I thought that was just like a nice little moment of humanity or something. Some yeah. little nice little touch of detail that I appreciated. Well, that is one thing about this film is that I kind of said earlier when they put a lot of thought in it. There is a lot of attention to the detail in the film. And I do think that's a little bit different than a lot of this era science fiction films. Yeah, and then I think the initial descent into mars is pretty unnerving as well i mean it's like yeah it's like entering the inferno of hell almost because there's just these bellows of smoke and this endless vistas of burning fire all over the place well, i agree but and, and you know speaking of coming into mars one of the things that i do appreciate the, about the film kit's landing isn't perfect no and in so many of these films you just kind of like Bloop, you're down there you are and even this was a struggle I, all of your like um <clears throat> critiques of the film I completely understand and I and I do think your enjoyment of Robinson Crusoe on Mars varies based on how much you enjoy this era's like science fiction or horror films I do think that because if you enjoy them more then you're just willing to give more mm-hmm. to some of the mistakes but I do appreciate and I even respect that they were trying to go a little farther than 
they probably were the studio probably even expected them to go. But they put a little more thought into the details, a little more attention. They thought more of different things that they can do instead of just kind of just doing the story and here it is. And we talked a little bit about this with Goke, but I'm not as um lenient in the criticism towards the film is because it's aspiring to do something much more than the films of its genre and I think it it misses the mark and so I'm not as I guess I'm not as forgiving as I am yeah. whereas you know a lot of like schlocky sci-fi its intentions are exactly what it is yeah and this film seems to kind of be trying to reach for something a bit more I appreciate it um but I will say in having this conversation that I am maybe a little bit op- more open-minded about certain elements I just think it's kind of weird tonally. It doesn't seem to exactly know what it wants to be. It seems to kind of want to cater to a more intellectual side of people, and it still wants to be able to play to the cheap seats without having to completely indulge in the sort of um, gimmicky set pieces. Yeah. Because um, I do believe, from what I've read, that the original screenplay did have a lot more of the sort of uh, expected action of a movie yes, it like did. this. Yeah, there was, yeah. Um, I do think a lot of that, though, with, like, the tone, I do think that a lot of that has to do with the era that it was developed in, because it came out after Kennedy's assassination, but it was developed before. So there is a certain positivity, and I do think that a film like this, released, say, in 1974, like, during Viet- the height in Vietnam, Watergate, things like that, the film would have been much darker and probably would have had a different, like the Friday and Kit relationship would have been different. So I do think the time that the film was developed has a huge, plays a huge deal, a huge part in um, the tone and the fact that it isn't very thrilling, that it is more positive and upbeat. Right. Well, it seems like it's almost attempting to preserve the legacy of what Kennedy believed about space it almost seems to kind of be trying to honor honor his memory in a sense and i do think even not even 1974 if the movie was made in 1965 it could potentially be a completely different movie because that was when they came back with the photo photos from mars and that's really where all the science in the film is disproven yeah and that i do think that is a shame because it's almost like this movie was dated before it even came to theaters in a sense like as soon as it yeah. played it was automatically well this isn't authentic at all we well, you know what, what's funny is that i've read that this film was a, a disappointment at the box office. it was a flop and i am kind of curious as to why you think that might be is it because as you said it was already dated by the time it came out or the fact that it did try to do a little bit more than the genre expected at the time did that cause problems? Because um, I highly doubt that any adult audience that they were hoping to get probably didn't see the movie. No. Leaving just like a, a kid audience and some of the themes of, like I said, the kind of like universal brotherhood and things like that. I don't know how much of those would have played for 10-year-old kids wanting to go see this in, at 12 o'clock in the afternoon on a Saturday who are expecting adventure. It's like a film for the casual scientist. <laughs> which I don't know how big of an audience there was at that point for it. Yeah. Um, I don't know if it was word of mouth. I don't know if this was, I mean, I guess this is considered a blockbuster for its era. This was a big 
studio release that I don't know. Do you know that? Well, I don't know. It wasn't necessarily a blockbuster okay. because it didn't have the biggest budget in the world, but the Byron Haskins was coming off of a relatively popular film uh-huh. to do this. Um, but, you know, Hollywood was different then. I mean, when you look at sequels today, The Amazing Spider-Man costs $200 million. It makes a lot of money. Amazing Spider-Man 2 is going to cost $300 million, whereas at that time, Planet of the Apes cost, say, $6 million. It was a big hit. So the next one costs $2 million. So there is kind of a, a Hollywood work. You, you did it once different... so you can do it cheaper almost. Like, yeah, yeah. yeah. Hmm. So I think um, that was probably, like I said, even though Haskins was coming off of a big film, that was popular. Um, well, that's what I wonder with even with the marketing is how much did the studio really have invested in it if he's being forced to reuse props costumes and from... footage to even – from other films yeah or if they initially kind of gave them a limited budget but some creative freedom and then once they started seeing the rushes they realized that their intentions were not what may be aligned with what their expectation of a robinson crusoe on mars movie was yeah. um, because i would say i watched the Benwell adaptation of this film before i watched it i uh, watched Robinson Crusoe on Mars, and the Bunuel film almost plays more like a genre movie than this does, um, and it's far worse. I mean, it's it's <laughs> terrible. Uh, knowing very little about Bunuel, I was also scratching my head as to this guy must have been a genius, and this is just a bad, a bad outing. Yeah, I've never seen his Robinson Robinson Crusoe. I haven't seen a ton of Bunuel films because he made quite a few of them. The ones I've seen are all great, so kind of interested. I completely believe you that this Robinson Crusoe was terrible. I've always kind of like scratched my head at him do, even doing the film. Uh-huh. Even more so because like I told you that uh, Dan O'Hurley he was nominated for Best Actor at the Academy Awards for the film so that makes me go it's even less of a Boone Will film than I originally thought it was if it's getting this kind of play at the Oscars in like the 50s or whenever it came out. Well it's also a film that shot its English and Mexican versions simultaneously. Yeah, which I wonder if that became a hindrance on what he was able and not able to do. That's possible. Yeah, but at least as an adaptation, this film is far more, I think, successful in that because it doesn't necessarily. I I don't know. I find to some extent there are elements of the Robinson Crusoe narrative that are quite mean spirited in some sense. Mm-hmm. I even think the notion of because this character rejects the life that has been you know, designed for him by his family, the fact that he rejects that, therefore he's rejecting God, then his time on this island is a, it's basically his retribution. He's paying for the sins that he commits because he chooses to be an individual. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't conform. So this movie is wise in that it doesn't try to provide any backstory prior to Kit's uh, mission to Mars or whatever. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, we know nothing really of... Of the character. I mean, even how even how Kit's Kit is introduced secondary to Adam West's character. I mean, he's for all intents and purposes, you you think Kit's gonna land, he's gonna go find find Adam West, and they're gonna be off together. Yeah. So it's interesting when it takes that twist. Well, I think even the first time we see um, Kit is on Adam West's television monitor. So I mean, he's not even introduced. Well, then he comes in, in, in hanging like upside down. And... Yeah. Yeah. I'm kind of interested about seeing there was a 1975 adaptation of 
Robinson Crusoe, and it was titled Man Friday. And it stars Peter O'Toole and Richard Roundtree. Ooh. And it's supposed to be like one of the most racist films you could possibly have seen. Really? And it's played for comedy, a lot of it. Some of the things that they have... Just the thought, like the casting of Peter O'Toole, like let's get the most Aryan looking actor we could possibly imagine. Oh, it's streaming. Okay, it's streaming on Amazon Instant. I might have to watch it. But from one of the things I read, they're, I guess it's at night and O'Toole as Crusoe says something like, I, I you know, I wish I had a, wa- a woman right now. And Roundtree as as Man Friday says some and from what and and the description I read kind of says it in kind of like a like Al Jolson kind of way. Well, I've got a body too, you know, Mister Caruso or something <laughs> like that. And it's like, oh my god. And um, well, this yeah, this may have I've, to be a future episode of Film John. Like I said, I've never I, and I'll have to find because I believe it was reviewed in a tapes from the attic section of a. Video Watchdog, which Shapes from the Attic, was a section of, like, out of print, like, videos and DVDs, and I believe it was reviewed in that, or Joe Dante reviewed it in uh, his Flea, Flea Bit Flashbacks uh, section, and that's where I read it. But I was like, I couldn't even imagine, especially with O'Toole and Roundtree, I'm like, I don't, wow. Yeah, so that sounds interesting. Do you, <laughs> how do you, how do you think this fits in, I guess, with the Criterion Collection? Well, since you wrote an interesting, you wrote a persuasion paper on it, I'm sure you have a lot to say about that. Well, you know, like, I think some people um, have such a, I think fans of the Criterion Collection, or certain fans of the Criterion Collection, I should say, have a different view of it than I think the actual company does. Whereas the company looks at things what they think is important in some way. And fans, I think, look at it in such a, a snobbish way that they can't see how certain things are important like i understand why the rock and armageddon are in it well they're and i mean they're incredibly culturally significant significant films. pieces of work and, at the time that they came and out. um when i one of the you know they go to the wexner center a lot people from the criterion collection and they always have q a's when they do it and one of them that i was at someone asked well why do you have armageddon and the rock in the collection and the guy's answer i thought was great he was like well you know Michael Bay style of filmmaking is a major type of filmmaking and has been for the last 15 years. And that the person that makes the best Michael Bay films are Michael Bay. So we should kind of have a film that represents that style. Mm-hmm. Because that doesn't mean I like it, but it, it is a important kind of, it is an important style and we should represent it. So I have never questioned except tiny furniture. I think. And the big chill, the big chill now. Yeah, uh, that, the, that is one of the... I've, I've never questioned, other than Tiny Furniture and the big chill, how did this movie get picked? Um, I, you know, I, Robinson Crusoe, I think, is um, it stands out for that kind of, that era's science fiction, and it's a little bit better than a lot of them, and, you know, not as good as, say, like, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, but it's a different kind of film. And I think the... The film that you can kind of like compare to and say this film's better is Forbidden Planet. Forbidden Planet is better than Robinson Crusoe on Mars. But they're not going to get Forbidden Planet. Forbidden Planet, though, is not... It's a very different film, anyway. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's still a different film, yeah. It's not aspiring um, to be cult, uh, scientifically authentic no, right. in any yeah. way. And I think that plays a lot um, into their decision of wanting to have Robinson Crusoe on Mars. 
is, as strange as that is, as strange as it is to connect this film to 2001, I think the, the intentions of making a scientifically accurate film kind of reflect what Stanley Kubrick wanted to do with 2001. And in a way, it's a stepping stone to 2001. In watching this, I did, because it's actually funny because I watched 2001 before I yeah, watched I saw this that, as yeah. well. And I actually thought he did that on purpose. Not, not really. It kind of, me and my girlfriend were talking about something and I made a reference to 2001 and then I had realized she had never seen the film. So it kind of became, oh, we have to watch this then, right now. I mean, it, it kind of... Uh, <laughs> it's a... It's a storm warning. Just give it a minute until it goes okay. away, and then I'll... Okay. <laughs> what the hell's going on? Uh, keep that in. Keep this in the show. That was awesome. <laughs> so it just so happened that it kind of... I ended up kind of on a sci-fi yeah. marathon a little bit, and maybe it wasn't the best film to watch prior to going to see Jonathan Glazer's Under the Skin either. <laughs> yeah, I thought, yeah. So. Um, but it was watching this after so recently revisiting 2001 and seeing that, you know, Byron Haskins is not Stanley Kubrick. No. His resources are going to be limited. He's also making a film at Paramount versus Warner Brothers, which I think... It's a big deal at that time. I, I do, because I think Paramount was not as open-minded a studio as Warner Brothers was. And also uh, the resources were different, because you know, Warner Brothers is kind of, at that time, especially was kind of like the Cadillac of movie studios in a way right so brian haskin is doing the best that he can to try to present something that is accurate i mean it's also just that by the time stanley kubrick makes 2001 even though i think they were developing the film by the time this film came out yeah probably there is a lot more scientific information that i'm sure that they had at their disposal than the filmmakers did during this time so I mean, I don't question Robinson Crusoe's involvement, you know, place in the Criterion Collection any more than I do Carnival of Souls or Equinox, any of those films. I think it's a, it's a better made film than those movies. Um, yeah, and it's definitely, I think, has more historical significance. Well, I will say the Equinox thing. I don't know about because I do think Equinox is in it strictly because of its connection to Star Wars. Mm, okay, those guys went on to do the special effects for Star Wars. All right, I have not seen Equinox, but. I didn't. I didn't even know. good special effects, and those guys made it as teenagers, and it's like Denny Muirin and those guys, and they ended up doing the special effects for Star Wars. So I do think that's the prime reason why that movie's in the Criterion Collection. But I mean, I think Robinson Crusoe has every right to be there if yeah. so choose to have it there. I don't oh yeah, know. whatever they think should be there should be there, except tiny furniture and the big chill, which blows my mind. What boring! What boring movies to pick. <laughs> The big chill is, is there because it's the best Kevin Costner performance of all time. He's just a dead, and that's not even true. <laughs> or maybe because Jeff Goldblum is in it, they're just like, we got to get all the Goldblum titles that we can get. get our all. They should have gotten the Fly first. I am excited about their re-release of Scanners. Yeah. That yeah, and I'm more looking forward to the Brood. I like the Brood more, so they haven't announced the Brood yet, but we know it's coming. The Brood I have not seen, and it's definitely something I want to do on the show at some point. because I've... I like The Brood. You know, the, all of those early Cronenberg films, like I always think it's crazy when people say that those films are better than like A History of Violence because they're not. <laughs> but they all are, 
kind of like <laughs> what what what's funny is that they're exploitation films, and you would think that by da- but because they're by David Cronenberg, they're going to be a little more high highbrow, and they're not at all. <laughs> no, they came from within is a really trashy movie. Oh yeah, um, and I like that movie too. But I mean, they they are just as sleazy and rickety in in their production values as anything else. I mean, they're not super slick. I don't think his films really got super slick until '83 with Videodrome and The Dead Zone. I think prior to that, his films were, like I said, the best way that I can describe them is kind of rickety. Cronenberg's no Haskin, though. That's for no. sure. Um, oh, I bet he hates Robinson Crusoe and Mars. David Cronenberg. They don't understand science fiction. No, no. Only I do. Yeah, what a... For a guy that makes movies as good as he does, he's kind of a turd. Yeah. Um. So, final thoughts on Robinson Crusoe on Mars before we throw up the old jive turkeys um i like i like that air science fiction films i like it quite a bit so like i said i'm kind of more forgiving on a lot of problems that these films have um and and it kind of like stokes my fire when it comes to uh politics with kind of like the brotherhood of man idea which i love and then you gotta love a movie with tons of ideas which i think is great and the hallucination scene is actually a fantastic scene so um, I might be, like, overrating it compared to some, but I'd give it four jive turkeys. Um, but again, like I said, if you don't like this kind of film, you won't like it. And um, <laughs> that, I mean, that that's true. If you don't like this film, you're not going to like it anyway. And I'm um, not saying that you don't like these kind of films, but uh, I know I'm very forgiving for a film like this. No, I, I was actually in looking at uh, sort of the release dates of the fifties and sixties, I actually think that the sixties actually sort of declined in quality because there were, I think a lot of interesting science fiction films in the fifties, in, in the fifties, yeah, there were evasion of the body snatchers, the, the, and, of the body snatchers, I think is, I mean, that's such a fantastic movie. They, the thing, you know, oh, and, the thing is great. I mean, what hurts the thing though is John Carpenter's is better. Right. Right. Um, but the thing is really good. Um, and I think in the sixties, I think over in Europe and Asia, they were doing some more interesting things with yeah. the genre than they were in. I would say movies. definitely in Russia, they were doing Oof. Russia. They were really going crazy. And I, in when, Japan, when is in like, Russia going crazy? Well, you know, but even like Japan with like stuff like, like Gokei and some of the other ones. Um, um but I'm going to give the movie two and a half out of five jive turkeys. All right, so welcome to the listener trivia question segment of the show where we present a trivia question that will generally be related to the film discussed, and we ask the listeners to write us in with the answer. Yeah, should, it, should I go ahead and read last week's question? Last ep- or last episodes, I guess, not last week's. Well, I was, was going to say that if you do end up being the chosen one, you will get to recommend a film for Andy and I to Ooh, talk about on a future I know, episode. I know. I'm nervous. I'm nervous about what it could be. The question was, what is the highest grossing film in Japanese cinema history? The answer, Spirited Away from 2001. Yeah, the Miyazaki film. Yeah. Which actually is kind of a listener selection that we have not gotten around to yet. Oh. Uh, are you a fan of that film? Yeah, well, the the thing is, is I always get confused with Howl's, Howl's Moving Castle. Moving Castle, okay. 
and I'm not sure if I've actually even seen Spirited Way. I have a I have a good story. I have a good story. About you wrote it. a persuasion paper on that. No, no, I saw it the I saw it theatrically during its American, you know, its a uh, American theatrical release, and um, I went with a couple friends of mine. I had one friend who would speak during movies, like he would talk during the film, and it would drive me crazy. Not only because it was annoying, but I was con- very conscious of everyone else around me. Like uh-huh. other people in the audience have to find this obnoxious, and this guy's sitting next to me. And so I would get to the point where I wouldn't even tell him we were going to a movie. And uh, he would inevitably say, oh, what are you guys doing? And someone would say, oh, we're going to see a movie. He's like, oh, I'm coming. And so, so through Spirit Away, he talked the entire thing. But it was in a big, big theater, so it wasn't too bad. But this is where I'm going to connect it with David Cronenberg's Spider. Okay. Which obviously wasn't playing in a big movie. He <laughs> was playing in a small one. And I'm like whispering to my friend, they're like, we're going to see Spider. Don't tell Luke. Luke was his name. Don't tell Luke. Don't tell Luke. And so it was like, the movie was starting in like half hour or so. And we're like, oh, we're leaving now. And he's like, oh, what are you guys doing? I'm like, oh, nothing, nothing. And then one of my you know idiot friends that was with me, he's like, we're going to see a movie. <laughs> so he came with us. And like I said, not a big theater. And the, and the, and the crowd that was going to see Spider... Different kind of, different kind of they crowd. Don't, they don't tolerate talking. No. And he spoke through the entire goddamn thing. And I hated the movie because of the experience. I haven't seen the film since, and I hate it because it was a miserable experience. Him speaking through the entire thing. So when he when he's speaking, what does he say? He's just talking to you, or he's talking you to know, himself? No, he's commenting. He's commenting on the oh, film. Oh no! He's jokes. He's laughing. He's and, one um, of those guys. Yeah. And and we leave. And I, like I said, I hated it because it was a horrible, miserable experience. The movie's 90 minutes long, and it felt like it was three hours because I felt so awkward in this theater seeing this movie with this group of, you know, the people that were, the other people that were here to see this movie. They all probably wanted to string them up outside. And we get in the car, and no one says anything. And then Luke just goes, that movie was great. (laughs) How can you even watch it? (laughs) And, um... (laughs) <laughs> another friend of mine went to see the two towers with luke's whole family and they and, all talk and that's what he said and they're like did luke's whole family talk to him? he's like yes the entire time for three hours they wouldn't shut up oh no it was uh but at least with two towers the movie's loud and i'm sure no one else really noticed it but with spider it's like oh my god shut up please could you imagine going to see like like at a revival house like Nosferatu with him? Oh, we went to see um, Metropolis in Ice cuz and this was after Spider and I said you cannot tell Luke that we're seeing this movie cuz he will talk through the entire thing and it's silent. He cannot come. So no one said anything to him. Thank God. <laughs> Finally, they got the yeah. message. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, they thought it was funny cuz how much I hated it that he's talk through the entire movie they thought it was funny all my friends thought it was funny that i hated it and they'd get a big kick out of it i found it horribly obnoxious i couldn't handle that oh it was, yeah wasn't wasn't fun i did I, I did go to a theater once with a friend of mine who and i had never been there before and as we're walking into the theater he says oh by the way if anybody starts talking on their cell phone don't say anything and I said, well, I, I probably wouldn't anyway because I'm not – I completely avoid confrontation at all costs. But I said, why are you warning me of this? Well, 
couple of times people have done that and they've been stabbed. God. <laughs> like, oh, okay. Thanks for warning me. And sure enough, about halfway through the film, guy in our exact aisle as me, about five seats down, whips out his cell phone, starts talking on his cell phone. And I didn't dare. What movie was it? Looper. Oh, well, man. Looper's not worth dying for. No, no, not by any means. Especially as I, as I reflect on Looper more, I'd, I'd rather have died than continue <laughs> to watch Looper. Yeah, Looper's not worth dying for. Um, that kind of reminds me of another Luke story. When we went to see Freddy vs. Jason, I mean, it was a group of like 15 of us that went to see Freddy vs. Jason. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was like the midnight showing. It was like the Thursday that it opened. And like the whole crowd, I mean, it was like sold out. The whole crowd was like raucous. And um, for such a terrible movie, too. But like everyone was like real into it. And there was this guy sitting behind us who, you know, we were like 19 or so at the time, I guess. And there was this group of guys behind us that were probably late 30s, but they probably haven't grown since they were, like, grown up any since they were 19. Mm -hmm. And, like, before the movie, they're, like, joking around with Luke and they're having a good time with him. And uh, Luke kept calling him Beethoven, the the one guy (laughs) Beethoven. In reference to the composer or the dog? Yeah, yeah, no, no, the composer. Okay. And during the movie, Luke's talking through the whole thing, and Beethoven got mad at him and told him to shut up and uh luke goes beethoven like throughout the movie he would go beethoven turn your symphony down turn your symphony down and this guy got so mad that his other friends had to hold him back because he was gonna death luke (laughs) turn your symphony down wow oh god where is luke these days i don't know Luke would probably be a great person to do a commentary track with. Oh, God. Because he'd never stop talking. No, he wouldn't, but he would say nothing that has anything to do with the film. Hmm. Yeah, I was actually a little worried with that one. Not that Beethoven would have done anything to any of the other guys, but I was for certain he was going to, like, grab Luke or something. Right. (laughs) So. Well, maybe it needed to happen. Maybe he would have (laughs) learned his lesson. Maybe. Probably not. (laughs) Probably not. So, Luke, if you're out there, you're listening... Write he's us in. probably not listening. If he's listening, he probably, like, talks through the entire podcast. Yeah. He talks yeah. over you, so he can't even hear yeah. right. story. So he doesn't even know my story. Um, so should we get with this week's question, then? Well, we gotta, we gotta announce the winner. Oh, yeah, we gotta announce the winner. Who's the, who's the winner of uh, the uh, question? So question. the winner for this month's trivia question is, and I apologize if I mispronounced the last name, is Joshua Four Fear. Fior? Fior? It's F-O-E-R. F-O-E-R. Four. Four, Four, maybe? Like he's golfing. Like, you know, Joshua Four. Uh, So congratulations, Joshua. Uh, I'll be responding to your email shortly. And we look forward to your film selection for a future episode. Pick a good one. Choose wisely. Police Academy 6, City Under Siege. Yeah, or if you just want us to do all the Police Academy movies. God. Mission, mission to Moscow. And also thanks to Josh for participating. Uh, sadly, he was the only person that uh, the question was too submitted hard. an entry for this episode. <laughs> the question, question was too hard. You think so? Oh, yeah. No, I mean. I thought it was pretty media. simple. Yeah, I know. So hopefully more people will participate in this uh, trivia question for May, which I, I believe Andy has handy. Yes, I do. So, in Robinson Crusoe on Mars, the alien ships, their force fields, their explosions, and their sound effects 
are all lifted from an earlier science fiction film, which was also directed by Byron Haskin and released by Paramount. What film are they lifted from? So yeah, if you know the answer to that question... Everyone's going to say Man Friday. Man Friday. Prometheus! Prometheus! (laughs) I think they were from Prometheus. Somehow Haskins traveled in time to do it. Paycheck with Ben Affleck! (laughs) I want to see Paycheck on Mars. Yeah, that would... Paycheck anywhere except for where it actually happened would have been better. Paycheck on, I want to see Prometheus on Mars. The same story, just set it on the red planet. They'll probably say that it's Passion of the Christ, and they'll say that Byron Haskin is like a, a scrambled, what, what are you, an anagram for an anagram? Mel yeah. Gibson? Mel Gibson. Oh, I can see it, because there's the M, the E, the G, <laughs> the second G. Oh, it's full names, full of it. Oh, you know, that reminds me, too. Uh, it was funny because last uh, episode 66, we mentioned that Robinson Caruso on Mars, if Michelangelo Antonioni had ever made a sci-fi mm-hmm. film, this would be it. And yes. funny enough, this film is shot in Death Valley at Zabriskie Point. I think that's why we say that. D- d- oh, I didn't say it. I didn't know that. I, I think I said that. Oh, okay. <laughs> so I thought that was an interesting bit of trivia. Yeah, it is. I think the, there's even a Grateful Dead performance somewhere in it, I think. In Robinson Crusoe on Mars? Yeah, I think, I think so. Um, so starting to wrap things up. Yeah. Should we, should we do the preview for uh, the next episode? Well, we got to do the preview for where else you can find Andy. Oh, okay. Well, yeah, on the Steve and Andy Meet Batman podcast. Yeah, and on Letterboxd. Yeah, and Letterboxd. Yeah. Really wrote a very extensive review of... Uh... <laughs> what an odd... Of Love Camp? Yes. Of the Jess Franco film, Love Camp? What an odd film. It was an odd film. It was it was weird in that it was a uh, sexploitation film, but it was a love story. And it really was a love story. Hmm. Very odd. Very odd. Very, um... Didn't expect it. You know? I hadn't seen that one. Didn't expect such a tender love story in there. So, if, you know, anybody's out there looking to re-release Love Camp... You can maybe use uh, Andy's review that review as a blurb on the cover. My little blurb, yeah. What, what an, an odd film. film. It was odd. It was, it was, you know, it was, it was pretty good. It wasn't top, wasn't top tier Franco. He made so many films that you know, there's like a million tiers though. Right. So. <laughs> there's o- Oasis of the Zombies tier. And... Yeah, yeah. Um, but wasn't expecting, and it even had kind of like a twist ending. But the twist ending went with the love story. Hmm. She fell, she fell in love in that love camp. So. It was funny, though, because it was obviously made at a time when um, the leftist gorillas in South America were the were viewed as the enemies, were viewed as the villains, as opposed to the uh, the, the, the right-wing uh, mer- military groups that were ruling these South American countries and were kidnapping and killing people out of their homes and everything. Because hmm. uh, the, the gorillas are the villains. The gorillas are the villains of the film. Hmm. So... Another thing, even though he made some pretty explicit films, yes. the sex scenes in the film are not explicit at all. Not mm. explicit at all. And yet there's full frontal male nudity. Ain't a lot of full frontal male nudity, as a matter all of right. fact. Well, I've, now, you've, now you've convinced <laughs> now me. I've, talk, I've talked you into it. You're like, this is a camp that I want to go to. Well, I was a little disappointed when in uh, Arcom, you know, Mantee's in there taking a bath, and you can tell no. he's not wearing any pants, and I thought, You've shown one sausage in the water. Why not another? Might as well. You know that's the scene that let uh, Schaffner know it was okay to show uh, Chuck, Chuck his Heston without his pants on. <laughs> Planet of the Apes. 
Yeah. You know that was it. He was like, if Haskins did it, I can do it too. If Manti can do it, Chuck Heston can too. Oh, Chuck's like, if Manti thinks he can show his ass, wait till I do it. Um, uh, Chuck Heston and other Film Jive related stuff can be found at filmjive.wordpress.com. Uh, we can be found on Facebook, Tumblr, and Stitcher Radio. Please write us a positive iTunes review. Recently received one that was not so positive, which I appreciate regardless. Uh, you know, provided some interesting information that I was not aware of. Hopefully this episode was a bit damper than it uh, usually is. Well, I think just us talking about Love Cam makes it a little more wet. Ow! We do need to throw in some subliminal audio with just, you know, occasionally throw the word in like cock, cock. <laughs> cunnilingus cunnilingus that was that was originally that, that was originally the title for the film was going to originally going to be called cunnilingus on mars yeah uh i should have done that for the nymphomaniac episode that would have been more appropriate but i actually don't think it would have been <laughs> i think it would have been more appropriate for this film uh next time oh the next episode we are looking at louis Mal's black moon from 1975 Yes, very excited. Haven't seen this film before. It's Joe D'Alessandro and a unicorn. Uh, and you can watch the film on Hulu Plus, and I also found a YouTube link for it. So oh, really? You can find, kind of find it everywhere, I guess. Yeah. So maybe I'll post that on the Facebook page for people to watch. Um, give that a look if you get a chance before the next recording. I, and, and I think this might surprise people. Zach is the one that requested Robinson Crusoe on Mars, and I requested Black Moon. That is true. It is almost kind of opposite of probably what people would have assumed. Yeah. yeah. Learn something new every day. Maybe we're identity swapping. Uh-oh. I love weird movies, too. Yeah. So. All right. <laughs> so <laughs> I think that's everything. Yeah, I think it is. Thank you for listening. And uh, until next time, keep on jiving.